very few entrepreneurs get to start and scale a business that becomes successful and are also willing to share that formula with others. Our next guest is Alexis Kingsbury, co-founder at Air Manual, who can systemize and scale your business without the stress. If you want to know more about Alexis and what he can do for you and your business, then join us after the introduction. Hello and welcome. I'm Clayton M. Koch, and I'm also the host for The Cashflow Show, the radio show that's disguised in the shape of a podcast, but with so much more. Every week, we'll be interviewing someone inspiring from the business world and finding out how they started in business, what their trials and tribulations were, and how they intend to grow their business in the future. We will also be finding out about what they do in their spare time, as well as asking them to pick a book, a film and a favourite single or album and to share their reasons for doing so. So why not join us at the Cashflow Show? It's not just a radio show, it's a whole new way of doing business. Hello Alexis and welcome to the Cashflow Show. Hi there Clayton, thank you so much, it's great to be here. You're welcome. Tell us what your current role is and what you're doing now. Yeah, so right now, so technically I own three businesses that are active right now. I am largely not involved day to day in two of them. Essentially, I've built the built the team to so that the business runs itself day to day. And so I think I tend to say sort of a day, a quarter of, uh, of my time is kind of on those those businesses. That's a, a consulting practice and a uh, a software business. And then I have another software business where I spend most of my time and that one's called Air Manual. That's all about giving teams the guidance that they need in terms of their processes, their onboarding, checklists, etc. Uh, so that they can succeed and do uh, really great work consistently uh, whilst allowing their leaders to step up in the organization and free up their time and so on, which uh, I've done successfully with my other businesses. And now we do that for, for others through Air Manual. In terms of how I spend my time and what I actually do i get to basically be the dancing monkey for the, for the <laughs> business i've got to a point where in this in this business as well that i'm not required in it day to day i'm not i'm not stuck in the business as usual and so i get to do cool stuff like this that i really enjoy having great conversations with people like yourself clayton i interviewed uh, you of course clayton on our own podcast on de-stress your business and i speak on stage at various events about how to be consistent in your marketing or in other parts of the business, how to free up time, how to uh, leverage AI and so on. Yeah, which I find enormously good fun. Uh, we're currently writing a book as well. So I get to do all these kind of things that are, I guess, could be just described as working on the business, right? It's kind of finding new ways to market and grow the business. And, and that's, that's how I get to spend my time when I'm, when I'm working, at least. <laughs> what I find fascinating is this, is that like a lot of people that appear on the cash flow show, your entrepreneurial journey began at a very young age. So my sources tell me. Can you share some of your earliest business ventures and what motivated you to start them? Yeah, so I think ever since I was a very small child, I always wanted to be a business owner. Well, that or a comedian, but after being booed off stage by uh, by my school school friends, <laughs> I decided at a talent show at uh, at school. Decided, yeah, maybe I give that one a miss. So um, I wanted to to build a business empire. That back then in my head, I wanted it to be bigger than Branson's. 
uh, that's um, Richard Branson rather than uh, Branston Pickle. Um, and so I kind of set that as my goal. Now, over time, I've realized that is actually not a goal I even wanted to, to really achieve. But that was the nature of my passion for I liked making things, building things, whether it's out of lemonade bottles and cardboard tubes or later on building websites and uh, various businesses I had from about the age of 12. I did everything from making local newsletters. I made some websites that got sort of ad traffic. I uh, built and sold computers, did all, all sorts of these different things, all in with the aim of growing a business. But in every single one, when it went well, I would get busy and I'd get stuck in the business and I'd be unable to grow it. And at the time, I thought the issue was that I had got a business model that couldn't scale. Whereas the reality, as I learned, and unfortunately it took a very long time, uh, I learned that actually any of those business models could have scaled. I just hadn't worked out how to scale it and how to uh, delegate and, and grow the be business beyond me. Um, and, and my life really changed and, and my business's uh, ability to scale really changed when I, I finally cracked that, but it took me a very, very long time. For a lot of people, there are two types of business people, people who get their business knowledge from what I would describe as academia or other people who get their business knowledge in, say, the Alan Sugar way, which is the I'm selling stuff out the back of a car. Did you feel that you almost had a hybrid approach in your life in terms of that? Yeah, I, I tried anything that I could. I did very definitely did both. So as a, you know, when I started age 12 and basically at any point in my life since the age of 12, I have had at least one normally multiple businesses on the go. Um, so I've definitely, actually with an exception of about six months during my final year of uni where I realized, ah, I might actually not do that well. <laughs> um, and so decided, tell you what, I'll just push this over the line. Um, but yeah, prior to that, I, yeah, I, I hadn't, I hadn't worked out how to, how to grow it. And so, yeah, I, I studied business studies at, uh, GCSE and at A-level. I studied psychology as well. I then went to university and studied management science. Um, and with all the different modules, part of that, everything from marketing to law and, uh, accounting and operations and everything all in a bid to try and learn how do you build businesses whilst simultaneously also running businesses? And then as part of that degree, there was a, a placement year as well. So I went and worked at DHL for a year where I, I, I joined their business support function. Initially, it was a summer job and then they brought me in for the placement year and then they kept me part time while I was still studying, uh, which is one of the things that then led to me having to kind of stop everything <laughs> put down in my final year at university. But like, I tried all of it and on, on paper, I should have been good at it, right? I, you know, I, I came from a background of two parents who had both built their businesses. I, I did well in my studies, you know, I was getting A's and I got a first at university. Like on paper, I should have been this absolute, you know, unicorn entrepreneur from early age, or at least it felt like that to me because that didn't happen. <laughs> and, so, and so for, for yeah, uh, well over a decade, I felt like I was um, slamming my head against a brick wall and could never find, quite find the route out. With that in mind, do you feel that when people now come to you as clients, 
A lot of people end up advising people on things they know nothing about. And that's one thing I've learned in business. Do you feel having had that experience of knowing that you had this potential and what you considered to be some good ideas that when they come up to you and say, oh, Alexis, you know, I've got this great idea and I think it can scale. You've been through that process. Do you feel that that's something that draws your clients more closer to the methods of of how you work? Because you've been there yourself. Yeah, I, I think so. I think that definitely, it definitely helps. And I think it's interesting that um, the areas where I've only been successful and they are uh, few and far between, I actually feel least qualified um, to uh, to share and, and speak about because having a bit of success can be luck. And also it doesn't teach you about what's really, what's really going on. Whereas I feel like I've got my, the, my best advice comes often where I have failed over and over and over and finally managed to get it to work, um, which is what, one of the reasons why we created Air Manual, because delegation and managing people is something that now I'm regarded as, you know, someone might call me an expert on it or, or you know, uh, and so on. Yet the reality is it was my weakest area for a very, very long time. And uh, and it and it wasn't something that came naturally to me. And it's it's one of the things that um, perhaps you know referencing back to Richard Branson, I very much set him out as a as a bit of a role model for me. And I read a load of his books. One of the things that stands out about Richard Branson is how naturally delegation came to him. He seemed to very early on just be able to identify, attract, and delegate to a variety of these you know great people around him that was his thing right is surround himself with great people and so he was able to build this this empire of businesses with these amazing people that that just kind of did these things and um and yet i never seemed to be able to get that to work and and so it felt like that held me back a long time and i think that's why i then now i think people find what i share really useful because it's not just coming from a position of oh i'm great at this let me tell you how I'm current from position of I was terrible at this and have still been able to make it work is here's what eventually worked for me and what's then worked for others. And I think that's um, that's really helped. I wanted to know what made you realize that scaling a business really required the focus on the people and processes, because most of us think I'm going to scale my business. I'm going to throw more money at it. So when I was at university, uh, I, you know, I learned the, the the theoretical approach to working in a business and simultaneously was trying to build businesses in the meantime and still couldn't make it work. So, you know, if you, uh, a little bit like the old, if you can't do teach, I became management consultant where I would train and teach <laughs> and then and tell other business leaders how to build their businesses, having completely unsuccessfully uh, done that myself. But actually, I mean, uh, you know, a joke that, that that's what I was doing. Really what I was doing is I wanted to learn. I wanted to go and work with big businesses and work out what were they doing that was different and learn from management consultants who helped these businesses to scale in incredible ways that they had done. And it was really there that I learned about the key is this combination of people and process. Because I think I think often I see in various you know books out there, there's great books like Who by Brad Smart and so on that talk about 
the importance of hiring amazing people. Or Eric Karenkohl wrote How to Hire A Players, where it talks about you know you want really amazing people in your organization, and when you have that, then it can it can grow great. And there's you know um, brilliant books by like Jim Collins and so on that talk about this concept of having a great culture and great organization. And I always kind of got that. I was like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. That's so freeing. And yet my experience of when I brought what I felt were great people into the organization was that often they wouldn't even get the results that I had been getting in, you know, maybe a day or two a week focusing on area, for example, selling. And yet I'm bringing this in this supposed A-player salesperson, and yet they can't even get the same results, never mind um, improving the results I was getting. And so I found that that was a, a piece that was missing. And when, when I saw how you could add processes into a business, where then it means that actually a lot of the large businesses I was consulting for did not have A-players. They, they didn't even have B or C players. It was in, in some of the organizations I worked with, I saw what, you know, often we might refer to as jobs worths. You know, there's people that you you bump into as part of working at, a, you know, uh, visiting an airport or whatever, and you can see there is no light in the eyes. They're not interested in what they're doing. And yet somehow things work. Somehow the, the check-in process or whatever still works. And I realized that the key there is process. It's about being really clear about what are the steps that need to happen. And so what I've found is that when you combine those two things, amazing stuff happens in the organization. And that's where you can get to the point that the business can run without you and grow without you um, rather than you having to be stuck in business day to day. You've mentioned on a couple of occasions about not necessarily always feeling that confident when you first started. Do you think that was to do with management or maybe that was partly internal? Um, so I think a bit of both. I, I mean, I've feared or I feared managing people for a very, very long time. And partly, I always felt like I was a bit different, which turns out was partly because I'm autistic. And so I, I always felt like I didn't quite know what to do in various social situations. I always felt a bit uncomfortable having small talk, which back then I thought was a key part of being a manager was just kind of, oh, you know, how's the wife? Da, 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 da. And I'd never even remember or think to ask those questions, never mind remember the answer for next time. And so I, I always feared that importance of so regular social interactions with people and then when i became a consultant and was very good at being consultant because suddenly you know my brain worked really well for very quickly getting a measure of what was going on in a in a in a business and being able to distill that and structure that thinking very very quickly so that worked really well for consulting but i had a manager at the time who told me he thought I'd never be a, a people, a good people manager because I didn't bring people with me. I didn't have the kind of skills to, to do that. And so that made me fear managing people even more. And so I, I held back from doing it. And so when I did then go back to start my own businesses, I essentially I avoided hiring wherever I could. And then when I did, I hired contractors on the theory, which I've found to be uh, incorrect that I don't need to manage them then because they're contractors. The reality is, of course, is whether you've got them employed via payroll or they're a contractor or a, or a other company, 
they need managing. Like you still need to be clear about what you expect from them. You still need to give them feedback on what you're getting. You still need to have difficult conversations if it's not going the way you want it. Like all of those things still matter. Um, but I, I tried to avoid it. And I remember one particular hire I made for a finance administrator many, many years ago. Uh, I hired someone who was uh, you know, loads of experience as a, as a bookkeeper, uh, as a contractor, got them set up, gave them access to the accounting tool and kind of left them to it. And it wasn't until I was having to do the year end accounts that I came in and was like, oh, there's a load of bank transactions here that haven't been reconciled. What's going on? And I realized that she had stopped doing it about three months before hadn't never messaged me, I hadn't noticed and she'd gone like, and I never heard from her again. And then of course, I went back through some of the work done and was like, oh, this isn't actually great quality work and I had to fix a load of stuff. So I realized that a hands-off approach to managing doesn't work either. Um, so you can see there's this repeated pattern of trying to avoid managing people. And even when I hired this amazing salesperson had done seven figures of, of sales in the previous year for a similar product. I brought him into the, the company. And I, again, I, I thought, I don't want to, do, I don't want to ruin him by, you know, stamping all over him or whatever. I'll let him do what he thinks is the right answer. And he couldn't, not only could he not achieve the million pound revenue, couldn't achieve the results I'd been getting, couldn't actually cover his own costs. And so as a result, I had to make him redundant and we had to make a, another employee redundant as well. It probably set us back like nearly two years as a result of that situation. And, and I look back now and I don't think it was the person. It was because I didn't give the guidance. I didn't give the, 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 the sales process and the collateral um, how to have a you know, how to have the sales conversation in a way that leads to a sale. And so that was really what cracked it for me when I realized can't hide from this anymore. I have to get good at this. This is this is a skill that I must embrace if I'm ever going to be able to to build a business. And I nearly gave up. I nearly gave up from from managing, delegating, being a leader, from entrepreneurship. I'd have had to go down the comedy route. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, because then you don't need people skills. Um, so uh, you know that that was that was kind of where I was where I was at at, at my lowest really in entrepreneurship was that moment of realizing I can't escape from this anymore. I've tried to run from it, and now I've I've actually got to learn these skills. And to do that, I read all of the books on this on these topics. I uh, spoke to all the smartest people I knew, and the not so smart ones who seem to be even more successful with their businesses <laughs> than the smart ones, um, to try and work out what what was it that they were doing differently. And it took about three years, but I put it together and then kind of, yeah, got it successful and working. And as a result, suddenly my businesses grew rapidly and I was able to extract myself from them and, and build more businesses since then. So it really, really was a turning point, um, but I had to get over that fear. If somebody were to go onto your LinkedIn page and see you public speaking, they probably wouldn't associate you with the way that you originally described yourself because you come across as being very much in the zone, very much uh, the tech entrepreneur presenter. You, you, you seem to have that control over that particular area that you're in. How do you reconcile those two things? Yeah, it's, it's really funny that, isn't it? It's, I think it, in more recent years, I've lent into what it is to be me more and more. And 
partly encouraged by my wife and uh, various coaches I've had and so on. And I kind of literally started to zone in on what is it that makes me me? And I'm I'm a geek. You know, I love I love learning things. And despite that, you know, at university, there were people that call me Kino for the fact that I was so keen. And and I got incredibly frustrated and upset back then because you know I felt like this is the whole point of going to university, isn't it? Is because we're meant to be keen and learning. And yet, you know, I felt like I was getting bullied the same way that I had through most of my school life for being different and uh, and all these sorts of things. And so. I think, and I think that's a common thing for for a lot of people just generally, but particularly those that are neurodivergent is this thing about kind of masking and trying. You know, you're you're told to be yourself, but then when you are, people don't want that version. You know, they don't. <laughs> you know, it's a bit like I remember reading um, how to win friends and influence people, and and realizing that the biggest difference was that in how to win friends and influence people. He asks, you know, he says, ask questions to people, right? People like talking about themselves and so ask questions. And so I was like, oh, wow, okay, brilliant. And so I started doing that and, you know, uh, at parties and things and would ask questions. And the thing that I realized is if you ask questions, no one asks you any. <laughs> and, you re- and you realize how terrible everyone else is <laughs> social engagement as well. And, and that was kind of a turning point for me of realizing, oh, actually, no one's brilliant at this. It's just that I struggled more. And I think leaning into these little weird things, the fact that I'm, you know, I am, I do love uh, having a sense of humor and making a joke of most things. And I do love being a bit geeky and weird. And, um, you know, I'm uh, I'm a passionate sort of husband and father who just like love spending time with my kids. And when my son said, hey, will you learn to skateboard with me? I didn't have a good enough reason to say no. So you know, you may have seen me get my skateboard out and be on stage on the skateboard, right? Um, and and I've I've kind of lent into that, and I think that's that's how I've become more free is just going. You know what? I'll just be more me, and I think um, it's helped having uh, kids and having a, an aut- autistic son uh, who you know really focuses the mind and helps me think about who do I want to be for him as well. Um, but that that's what you'll see when you see me on stage and so on. You see you see very much me. And particularly if you look at um, videos and or, or see me on stage in the last couple of years versus, say, um, eight, eight, ten years ago, I was trying to be what I thought people wanted or what, what it was meant to be. Whereas now, yeah, you, you're getting very much Alexis <laughs> as, as, uh, as you would get uh, one-to-one as well. So I think... Um, that's helped and that's helped my confidence a lot actually is is doing that and getting good feedback on that and getting better feedback on that than when I was trying to be something else. Over the period of time of seeing your work and obviously being partially involved in it, I notice you've spoken a lot about how can I put it? You've spoken a lot about cash flow. Mm-hmm. More, even more than I've spoken about cash flow, even though this is called the cash flow show, and I'll explain the reasons for that. Because what I find fascinating, and I wanted to compare notes with you on this, mm. in terms of scaling your business, there's no way you can scale your business without having control over your cash flow. Agreed. So, you know, it's just never going to happen. So, you've done a lot of work in that area. Why have you placed so much importance? on that in your own work? 
Yeah, so I'd say there's a few reasons. So the first is that with all my businesses, I've done them uh, what's described as bootstrapped, uh, you know, using our own funds, taking no external investment or actually any debt, um, partly through massive conservatism <laughs> and, and and low tolerance of stress. So as a result, it's been crucially important throughout our businesses, uh, and I say our, like myself and my business partner, uh, that we've built together to make sure that there's always going to be money in the bank so that the music doesn't stop. Um, and so in all the businesses that I've done in the past, I have tried to make, you know, I've cut everything to the bone and make sure that I could um, keep going even if the next experiment didn't quite go my way because uh, often it didn't. So <laughs> I that that in it, on its own was always a good reason for why cash flow has been a focus for me. I think the the other reason uh, that, and particularly that I've spoken about it more re- recently, is that I think it's a really common stress point for business owners. And to the point that if you're stressed about cash flow, particularly day to day, week to week, it makes you make bad decisions. It means that you have to switch from being long term in your thinking to very, very short term. Um, so I, I've had examples of clients where uh, you know they've had a good period of growth. And so they're looking at scaling, they're looking at how they're going to train up their next hire. And so as a result, you know, we've been perhaps working with them with uh, via air manual to, to help them create their processes for perhaps sales and create their onboarding checklists so that their salespeople can get up speed really quickly and do all of these things. And then, you know, some major customer pauses or cancels or whatever, and they've suddenly got this cash flow issue, and it means that they suddenly have to switch to such short-term thinking. So now it's no longer is it going to be how do we hire, how do we make sure that sales is consistent, how do we do all these things? Instead, it's where can I get money in tomorrow? And that that's a problem because it means that uh, by spending your time there, you kind of create that problem later, right? Because you're spending all your time going, oh, well, okay, let me let me spend all my time getting the money from that particular supplier or let me try and get this next big sale rather than creating an engine in your business that generates sales regularly rather than creating a marketing engine that generates leads or or setting up your business to, to be able to grow whilst you then work on your next product or or whatever. Instead, you're very just focused on essentially firefighting on the cash. And so so that was a reason that we did a big focus on, on cash flow. That's why we, we wrote um wrote a guide on essentially how to use processes to improve cash flow for the long term because that's a really big thing for us is that we solved our cash flow problems um, for the long term by by putting in processes by having um, you know daily bank reconciliations that mean that the that and not done by me by finance and <laughs> that means that we have absolute up-to-date financials all the time that that we have a 13-week cash flow forecast that is updated every week again and crucially not by me um because otherwise it just wouldn't happen consistently and and because that's done it gives us that visibility and we've got processes for chasing payments and reviewing and updating our pricing and all of these sorts of things that that contribute to having really good cash flow in the business that means that I don't, you know, I, I, for us, um, red on the dashboard for cash flow is basically that we've got less than uh, four to six weeks worth of cash 
in the bank balance. Mm. Whereas for most businesses, red on the cash flow forecast means going below zero, right? Yeah. And it's and it's and that's that though having those processes in place has allowed us to raise the bar, which means my stress levels relating to cash flow are much, much lower than they'd otherwise be. And it means I can I can stay in the long term. And I think that's why we spent we've spent time and created this guide around improving cash flow, um, which is available at uh, airmanual.link forward slash cash flow forward slash ebook. Um, we created that because we found so many clients um, end up stuck in that in that space and, and make these really bad short-term decisions. Do you know something? Even though this show is called The Cash Flow Show, people automatically think that all we ever talk about is cash flow. And we actually don't talk about it that much. And there's a reason why. I spend a lot of time during my formative networking years with people talking to me and you having your same experience of you. I'm not, I wasn't always naturally a talker that would go up to complete strangers. You know, when 20 years ago, I'm started to do a network and I realized I have to talk to these people, whether I like them, don't like them, whether I know them or I don't know them, because that's what you do to get business. Now, you would then say to, oh, I work in debt recovery or late payments and we do with cash flow and people would run into the toilets and hide, um, which, you know, made me check my aftershave and my deodorant to see if it just wasn't me, it wasn't a personal problem. But it showed me that there are a lot of businesses that really didn't want to deal with this subject. And to me, most businesses fail because somebody just won't, if, they, if you can't do it yourself, get somebody that says, this is what you need to do. This is how you need to do it. But I think it's one of those things when it comes to cash flow, it's like a hot potato that's passed from one person to one person and ends up with Doris in accounts or Doris in credit control. It's always going to be Doris. Um, uh, and, you know, that's that, that's what effectively happens. And as you say, when they go to into the red, it's going minus, <laughs> minus zero. Mm. We're going into the minus area as opposed to, okay, we've got ourselves some breathing space. A lot of businesses have money sitting in their business that they don't want or have the nerve to extricate themselves. And we have a lot of American listeners to the cash flow show. And Americans have got a different attitude. And I'm sure in your travels, you've noticed that they've got a different attitude towards money and towards collection of cash. But what I find is that whereas Americans will say, you owe me money, buddy, British people will say, oh, you owe me some cash. And I know you're a bit short at the moment, but um, I'll just borrow some money. <laughs> and then at the end of the ultimately what I'll then do is basically I'll see you on the golf course on Saturday, as opposed to actually dealing with the problem that's outstanding. I think there's a big part of that. I think that there's also just a taboo around it. And, and some of it because of ego and a sense of, um, oh, if I, if I talk about money and particularly a lack of it, does that show weakness? But I think also a legitimate concern, which is if I, you know, show blood in the water because I'm worried about cash flow, does that mean potential customers and suppliers and whatever will be turned off, right? Because they'll be saying, oh, they're struggling. So, so I think that's, there's an element of, of that. And it's, it's why, you know, when we wrote this, when we wrote this guide, we're really saying, you know, because the great work that you do, Clayton, where you're essentially, in many cases, you help people in dire straits, right? That are really um, uh, are in a emergency position of of cash flow, and they need to get a, get some money back. Or in other cases where you know they've got long term debts that that are just 
need to be collected. But um, often, in some cases, they're trying to collect stuff in more urgently because uh, they've left it too long. Whereas I'd far prefer that people have processes in place that means that it doesn't become an emergency thing, like chasing payments, Spot chasing on. customers. You know, as, as, as you've uh, talked about on uh, the De-Stress Your Business podcast, needs to be something that, that you're on top of and have a process for rather than is something that you suddenly do in an emergency when you suddenly look at the bank balance and go, oh, we're a bit short. Um, and that goes for so many other processes in your business that make a huge difference to, um, to, to cash flow. And so I think that that's... That's why we we took a particular interest in it, and uh, and and as a result of help clients to kind of put the process in place that mean that they've got longer longer term uh, now with their with their thinking because uh, they're not having to focus with the the, the day to day. Um, but yeah, I think it's it, it's been absolutely instrumental in my businesses and and being able to relax. Health, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I remember I remember in the early days of of the business where. I remember going on a particular walk with my business uh, partner, walking around um, Battersea Park in London, kicking through the leaves, going, <laughs> you know, we might be done in, you know, in in, in not that long from yeah. now because we've, you know, we've not got new sales coming in or whatever. And then that sudden relief when you get back to the office and open an email, and it's like, oh, they're actually, you know, this big project's going ahead. Everything's going to be fine. And going, oh, fantastic. And you have this high. Yep. And then... Nine months later, you're back where you were exactly. again. And you go, what's the point of this? And I think, it's, yeah, going through that experience too many times and realizing, yeah, you've got to design that out of your business so that um, you don't have this feast and famine cycle. You've got much more predictable uh, situation. And it's hard. It's it's not something that um, you can wave a magic wand on and fix on immediately. It, it it takes months and years to to implement. But when you when you do put it in the when you do have it in place it makes it so much easier particularly if you have it in place in a way that means it happens regardless of what's going on for you personally as the business owner you know if, if your team are always making sure that they're on top of um uh, collecting payments that, uh, that are due if your team are on top of making sure that uh, sales and marketing is ticking over nicely that your team are uh, cognizant of the fact that they shouldn't be paying every supplier invoice as soon as it comes in and instead it should be on a rhythm. Um, all those sorts of things mean that you can continue to work on your business rather than suddenly get sucked in when there's an emergency. Now, I'm very conscious that we haven't had a lot of opportunity to talk about Air Manual as an entity in itself. Can you give us the background behind Air Manual and how that came to be? The thing that I've talked about for that I struggled with most was delegating. How do I hand over responsibilities, sales, finance, you know, whatever, to other team members so that they could do it as well or ideally better than me and to do so quickly and free up my time? And that was something that took me a long time to work out how to do um, properly. But when I then worked it out, it, it made an astronomical difference in my business and suddenly then i was able to grow to seven figure revenues and um you know really in you know, decent profits and the team running with it running it without me and i was able to take six week holidays and all these sorts of things but then i would talk to other business owners and they'd say how do i put that in my business and unfortunately back then i would kind of go i'd show them but it's like ah, it's a patchwork of things that would be really hard for them to implement and so what we did with their manual is essentially said, okay, how could we turn this into almost a, a sort of business operating system? How can we 
put together an approach and an underlying software application that makes it easy for businesses to document their processes, their training, their onboarding, get it captured really, really, really quickly. And when I say quickly, I mean documenting the process in less than half an hour, um, getting it handed over and actually followed by people and that um, we make it highly interactive so that people are actually checking stuff off as they go along. So it means that even if you've got an incredibly complex process done by not that talented and experienced staff, for example, if I take an extreme example, um, my children have a checklist. <laughs> my children are age seven and nine. They have a checklist that they can use for getting their school bags ready for the week ahead. It's complex. They've got to do swim bags and PE bags and games bags and school bags and their uh, school uniform. And each of those things has about seven different things that they need. And it varies depending on which day. And then there's music clubs and, and all these things. It is complex. And yet they can follow a step-by-step -step checklist in Air Manual, taking it off as they go along. Um, and in fact, rather nicely, my uh, daughter, uh, when I told her about a new feature we had around um, automations, she asked, uh, uh, for something which we set up so that when they now click complete checklist, when they've done all of it, it um, set, uses a webhook, sends a message, and as a result plays uh, celeb uh, celebration on on the uh, Alexa. <laughs> oh, is that <laughs> into the house? Like, plays celebrate, good time, come on, um, and then we all like dance break. It's great. <laughs> we do that, um, and it's uh, it's fun because um, each of the kids uh, following the checklist on their iPads, so you know when one of them has done it, and then when the next one does it. Um, but brilliant. You, you Absolutely know, I, I, brilliant. I found that we could we could create that in Air Manual and make it possible to delegate complex things um, uh, really, really easily and then continuously improve and then even better empower the team to actually manage themselves through using a process dashboard where they can see, you know, in finance, for example, here's all the things that we need to do, including submitting annual uh, our annual accounts and uh, our confirmation statement and renewing our insurance and all those things. You know, for finance, it's probably 50 processes that happen at different frequencies, and they can see at a glance when it was last done, when's it next due, what's overdue, which means that they can self-manage. They can tackle those things that haven't got done, and there's a corresponding checklist they can follow to get it done, which means that I've been able to hire people who haven't got 10, 20, 30 years of experience doing these things, and as a result, uh, I can hire more cost-effectively than perhaps uh, my my competitors, but also I can hire and nurture people in in those roles, uh, and I can, it means I can I can hire for values. That's the other thing. I can hire for cultural fit and skills rather than having to look for knowledge and experience, which I found time and time again is a much better way of finding people and and bringing them into the organisation. So so that's what we created in in Air Manual and uh, now work with. Uh, around 100 organizations from a variety of industries. And and it's interesting, the the problems that people come to us with um, vary a bit. So we'll have some business leaders where it's all about freeing up time. They're absolutely stacked. They're working 70-hour weeks, and they just want their evenings and weekends back. And so we help show them how they can start delegating uh, some of the things that previously perhaps they they thought they couldn't delegate. In fact, um, episode 87 of the De-Stress Your Business podcast that went live recently was can't be delegated. That's BS because <laughs> so often I hear like, oh, this is a task that has to be me and it's just not true. Um, so we get some business leaders that where that's the case. Others, they're fed up with repeated mistakes. 
either themselves but often their team where it's like you know it's groundhog day they seem to be firefighting constantly and of course it's because people don't know what needs to be done or they're not following processes to make sure stuff's done and so we help them put that in place. Um, or in some cases, it's businesses that are growing and they want to train people quickly, but they find it takes a long time to get those team members up to speed and it pulls their best people away from the day to day. So as a result, they hold back from hiring. And so we help them to, to get their onboarding and their training um, created as interactive checklists. That means that essentially it's become self-serve. People can learn what they need to learn at their own pace. And it means interactions with their manager and experts around them are value-add rather than spoon-feeding information. So those are some of the kind of challenges that we we help people um, people solve. But ultimately, for me, it's about helping business leaders make time for what matters most, which in many cases is working on the business and being strategic and growing it. Um, but also one of the things I love is seeing business leaders who are then able to do it to spend more time with their family, the people that they love, um, spend time on their health, you know, the things that really matter. Talking about things that really matter, I'd like to then move on to the section called What Are You Like?, which must be said in a Cockney accent, um, uh, where we talk about <laughs> your favourite book, your favourite film and your favourite music. And you've got some very interesting choices here, which is brilliant. Um, so what we've got here is your favourite book. You've got How Will You Measure Your Life by Clayton Christensen. Obviously, um, another fellow Clayton here. Tell me about this book. I've never heard this one. Oh, it's fantastic. So Clayton M. Christensen um, is the author of, a, of a, a great number of excellent books, including other books that you might have heard, like The Innovator's Dilemma, The Innovator's Solution, and so on. Um, he did a lot of research uh, around um, the nature of business and how they grow and um, uh, and the concept of just being a disruptor in, in an industry. So I've read a lot by Clayton M. Christensen. How Will You Measure Your Life is a really interesting one. It, uh, my understanding is it was written uh, when Clayton uh, unfortunately had a terminal um, cancer diagnosis. Uh, I believe he died through the um, during the the writing of the book, and uh, but worked with some some great partners on it, including I believe his daughter, uh, but certainly a family member. Um, and so it, it, you know, it's fantastic. It was published, and essentially the concept of that book is what really matters when it comes down to it um and there's like, like there's a particular um part in the book where he uses the analogy of of juggling for for managing areas of your life and he says imagine that um that you have uh, different juggling balls that represent different parts of your life there's one for work one for your family one for your health and so on and one of the things he says is that but you must remember that your one for work is made for rubber if you drop that ball you can always pick it back up again. It will. It does bounce nicely. Your family one is made of glass or you know or ceramic. You can drop it, and it it may not smash, but it it will probably be damaged, and you can't fix that again. And I think when we think about what that means for how we spend our time, you have a choice always. You have a choice as to how many hours a day you work, whether you work weekends how much holiday you take and how you spend that that and how uh, you spend that time when you are taking it off to be with your family whether are you on holiday but you're always on your laptop and taking phone calls or are those put away 
and you're you're fully invested. And I think for me, that just gave absolute clarity to something that I'd felt strongly um, when growing my businesses, which is that when I see successful people, they've often grown a business, become financially free, and then you know what? They don't then spend all their time with their family and doing all of those things. They don't reach this success point in their business and give it all up and then go spend with time with family. And often if they leave it that long, their family don't want to spend time with them. Anyway. Yes, very true. The key is that you have to enjoy the journey. And so what is the point spending 13, 25, 35 years building a business to maybe be able to exit it and spend time with the people that matter to you when you could do that now? And so that that was a big thing for me and something that you know I've baked into my life and 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 for all of my businesses, for my teams as well, is that we're very careful and we measure it how many hours that we work and how many days we're taking off holiday. And we make sure that ourselves as business owners, but also our entire teams, take 40 days holiday per year in addition to all weekends and that we don't regularly work late. And that when we, if we are working late, we're raising it as an issue to look at why is that? What's happened, what's going wrong in the business there that means that we need to fix it or whatever. And I think that attitude means that, you know, I take the kids to school every morning. I sometimes pick them up, uh, sometimes on my skateboard. <laughs> cool <laughs> uh, dad. You know, I, I spend the weekends with them and, and do all those things. And I, I, I almost take it for granted now that my working hours are, are that of, you know, a, well, frank, frankly, better than most employees because most employees at most companies, you know, still then end up working late and so on. And I think that was the, that book really made clear for me it was something that I'd, I'd felt and, but couldn't quite articulate. Excellent. So now let's go on to your favorite business books. And you've got three here, Scaling Up by Vern Harnish, yep. Get a Grip by Gino Wickman and Mike Patton, and The One Thing by Gary W. Keller and Jay Papasan. What's the importance of those to you? The first two, Scaling Up and uh, Get a Grip, um, are both fantastic books for giving a real, really clear roadmap and structure for how you can um, structure your business in a way that it can essentially um, run like clockwork, which would be another uh, another book that I would include in there written by Mike McCallowitz, um, where it's all about how do you, you know, how do you structure the business in such a way that it can run without you and, and not even just run, but actually scale. And um, those those books were instrumental for me in really getting clear on how to do that. Um, in the case of the one thing, um, uh, by uh, Gary Keller and Jay Papasan, that is really powerful in the sense that it basically boils down to asking the question, what one thing can I do um, such that everything is either easier or not required? And it's essentially a game of relentless prioritization, identifying that where you spend your time is less about doing the hundred different things and more about pulling that one lever or knocking down that one big domino that knocks everything else. And I think that's a really powerful um, way of looking at it. And I think particularly when I talk about making time for what matters most, often I'm trying to help business leaders to free up the, the space, both um, in their calendar, but also in their minds to be able to identify what is that one thing that's going to make all the difference. Because when you do do that, when you you know identify, for example, oh, the one thing that will make all the difference is if I wasn't the 
bottleneck to all sales. Right. You go, oh yeah, wow. You know what? It what if I could remove myself as a bottleneck to scales sales? How much more could I grow the business? How much time could I dedicate to lead generation? Oh wow. Okay, that would be big. Okay, so what one thing could I do that would mean that I'm not a bottleneck to sales? And starting there is really powerful lever, and I, I, I like that. So uh, there, yeah, those are three fantastic books for for people who are looking to scale up. Uh, and and grow their business in a in a non stressful way. <laughs> Excellent. So now we're going to go on to you've picked one single and one album. You've picked "Remember Me" from the film Coco. Yeah. So that that single I chose. Um, so that is a song that I sing to my daughter every night. Uh, the uh, and certainly or at least the ones that I'm home um, uh, to my daughter uh, when she's in bed, um, and it's. Uh, yeah, so it's it has special meaning for me and is incredibly poignant. And the the lyrics of that song um, are essentially saying, you know, remember me um, while I'm away, and <laughs> which is a um, a hard thing to to sing because often a you're singing it when you are there, but sometimes you know that you're going to go away. Yeah. And so whether it's going away, you know, often uh, you know going away for work purposes, and I think it really focuses the mind on am I okay with the um, the transaction I'm making there, the decision to spend time away from the family. And I think I, I, I value that song both because she really appreciates it uh, and, ch- and chose it and so on. But also I find it a really useful reminder to help me make sure that I'm making that right decision on um, where I'm spending my time. So, yeah. Now we move on to Muse, um, uh, the rock band. Um I don't know if they're a progressive rock band. I don't, I don't think that term's a bit out of date, but um, very much uh, an, a, a band full of concepts and some um, very extended um, jams and so on and so forth with their album Origin of Symmetry. Yeah, so I, it's, it's funny. I've always been quite weirdly eclectic in my music tastes. Um, you know, we talked early on in the episode about uh, perhaps some of the awkwardness that I had early on in my life and what it meant to be me. Um, you know, it's, it's funny that I think my, one of my first album was, uh, was probably like bewitched or something like a really non cool, um, <laughs> band to, to like when you're at school, uh, and something I would have been, um, absolutely, uh, ribbed for, uh, at the time. Um, but you know, I, I've always liked, uh, Pink Floyd, and I remember at, um, in a music class at school, I took a cassette of Tracy Chapman in when it was like, oh, you know, bring some music in that you liked, and I was relentlessly kind of bullied for it um, and mocked for it because other kids were bringing in pop music, right? Um, and of course, now I look back on it and go, Tracy Chapman's amazing, and all the <laughs> pop music that you brought in, no one listens to now. Um, so it, it, it's funny that I kind of reflect on that as being like, you know, those were times where I was basically learning not to be me. And, and um, uh, that's quite painful. Whereas Muse is an example of an artist that I absolutely loved and had friends that liked too. And it was probably one of the first occasions <laughs> where I really felt like, oh, yeah, no, I actually do like stuff that other people like. Um, and I feel it uh, felt it kind of accepted uh, and and um, part of a friend group that enjoyed it as well. And so I think, um, yeah, that was that that was kind of nice. And uh, I've I've really loved uh, Matt Bellamy and and you know his his work and and his 
um, great range and and I suppose that that eclectic nature as well of of styles I really really appreciate um it reminds me like I easily could have also chosen um an album uh, which would perhaps be by Avicii because I'm um, into house it's a dance music house music as well okay. and that would be another another example of where um uh, you know there's another uh, artist, um, Penguin Cafe Orchestra, um, which is probably not that familiar um, and is quite weird in some of the music. Um, highly recommended. And I remember uh, playing some of it to my wife and her kind of look at me quizzically like, what is this weird rubber? <laughs> um, including there's like a song called Telephone and Rubber Band where those are two of the instruments. Um, and I remember as listening to Avicii, one of our joint favorite artists and the music coming on, and me going, huh, this includes a sample from a Penguin Cafe Orchestra song. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, and it's just like stuff like that. I, I, I've loved those kind of moments where you just go, ah, oh, yeah. You know, particularly as I've leaned more into the fact that I don't feel cool and don't often like the things that people do. And then you kind of realize that actually some of the people you really respect out there, like, like Muse and like Avicii, actually... Yeah, they they have these weird likes as well, and it makes them them, and it makes them awesome. So lean into it. Excellent. So that's brilliant. I think that's given us a good overview of your musical tastes, your musical film and book taste. Oh, but we haven't we haven't finished yet. You've got your film selection, which is a beautiful mind. Yeah. So uh, for those that haven't seen it, you've essentially got Russell Crowe um, playing the great John Nash. Um, a uh, essentially ma mathematician um, uh, who, in the film, he uh, essentially discovers game theory, and and uh, it, it's incredible, right? As a as a as a as a film, as a piece of work, and so on. Like, I love the concept of game theory and and what it means for psychology and how it operates in all different parts of uh, life. Plus, the film itself has got um, an incredible twist in it. Uh, which I won't spoil because I highly recommend people go and watch the film. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, I, I love it as a film because it, it it is clever and smart and throws you in different directions. And at the same time, you're learning an actual piece of history about something that's actually really important. Um, and uh, yeah, I really, I really, really like that. So now we're coming to the end of our time here on the Cash Flow Show. What we want to really know is, is what's in the pipeline for Air Manual going forward? What is going to happen for the business? Because as you said, if you're going to spend less time on the business, most entrepreneurs are addicted to business. We've always got an idea. We're brushing our teeth. We've got an idea. We're tying our shoelaces. We've got an idea. Is that where you feel that you're going now that that air manual can really stand on its own two feet? I think for me, what I love doing at the moment is showing people how they can solve some of the biggest problems that they have in their business and life, right? You know, literally we've worked with clients who are, are working 70 hour weeks and have had heart attacks because of stress. We've worked with business owners who are on paper doing really brilliant work, growing really fast, but are super stressed and hating it. We've worked with business owners who are um, you know, in a position where they could be growing the business really fast, yet are having to turn off their marketing because they're, they're, they can't handle the 
um, opportunity and sales and, and delivery. And yet we're able, those are all problems that we're able to solve uh, relatively quickly. So I love continuing to build that business. I love speaking about it and, um, you know, talking on stage and doing podcasts and putting out content via social media to try and help people see what's possible and shift the mindset and understand what are the specific steps, a checklist, if you will, of how you can do this, even if it isn't something that comes to you naturally. And so for quite some time, I'm going to be spending time, my work time doing that. I, I, I don't actually plan to stop doing business at any point. I've managed now for quite some time, uh, I'd say probably five, six years, I've managed to create a setup in my businesses that means that I'm always spending the time that I want to spend um, with my children and family. And so I, I don't feel like, oh, one day I'll hit this milestone and then be able to, to uh, come off the boil. I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I've got that in I suppose, nice work-life balance, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it means that I'm able to just spend more time at work doing the things that I enjoy and I think uh, can have the biggest impact for the most number of people. I think in terms of things that you can expect if you uh, follow me on social media, so you know, search for me, it's Alexis Kingsbury, mainly LinkedIn and Instagram, but also other, uh, other social um, platforms as well. And things that you can expect from me are some stuff around you know, examples of how people are, are, are using processes and checklists and onboarding and so on to uh, unlock their business growth while reducing stress. Um, you can expect to see uh, some really cool stuff that we're doing. Um, like on the air manual side, we're like adding, like leveraging AI and templates and so on to really remove all the friction for people around getting processes documented. Cause I think that's something that really holds people back. Um, and so, yeah, I think you can essentially expect to see me coming up with lots of different ways in which we can really remove all the friction that people have to getting their business documented, getting it systemized, getting it running and able to run without them. Because I hear on a daily basis, all these common myths, mistakes, misunderstandings around what is possible, whether it's, oh, well, I can't possibly delegate this, or I can't hire right now, or um, I, you know, uh, I can't uh, uh, train someone and get them up to speed quicker than, you know, four weeks or whatever. All of those things are incorrect. And, and often people hold off from solving the problem because they think, oh, well, yes, one day I'll systemize my business and document my processes, but it's probably going to take me a month and I just don't have time right now. So I'll wait. Whereas the reality is in an hour a, uh, a week, they could be saving two days per week ongoing. Um, uh, and yeah, it's just mind blowing the kind of return on investment of your time that you can apply when you do it right. So that's where you'll get uh, get from me for quite quite some time to come so for all the listeners the cash flow crew who want to know how to save that two days a week where can they contact you and get hold of you yeah so uh, do reach out on social media so you can find me at alexis kingsbury uh, you can email me alexis.kingsbury at airmanual.co um, but also if people are looking to to free up that as you say, that 15 hours a week, uh, those two days a week, um, and remove the constant stress and unlock growth. Uh, we do actually have a recording of a masterclass. I ran on that. Uh, they can find that at airmanual.co forward slash webinar. Um, and uh, yeah, and also uh, check out, you know, check out a podcast, De-Stress Your Business. 
Um, we've had some fantastic guests, including Clayton. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, so go go check it out and listen to some episodes, and I'm sure you'll uh, you'll love it. So, Alexis Kingsbury, co-founder at Air Manual, thank you for joining us on the Cashflow Show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're most welcome. We've come to the end of the Cashflow Show for today, but I would like to say thank you to our guests for taking the time to share their knowledge, wisdom, and insight. If you loved what you've heard on this week's episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts and leave a five-star review and feedback as it really does help. Whilst you're there, listen to some of our other episodes, which you are bound to enjoy. We want to make this the go-to podcast for entrepreneurs wherever they are in the world and spreading the word really is the best way to grow our show and our community to achieve greater things. Be sure to join us next time for real people, real business, real talk.